As many of you know, my children have been uh, made to learn different catechisms over the years, whether that be at home uh, or in Sunday school here or, or at their school now. It's been a blessing to me. I trust and pray and hope that it will be a blessing to them, especially in the years to come. Uh, this week during dinner, we had worked on memorizing two particularly happy questions and answers from their school's catechism. Uh, here are the questions and answer. Here's a question. What happened to our first parents when they had sinned? Answer, instead of being happy and holy, they became sinful and miserable. And, question, what effect did the sin of Adam have on all mankind? Answer, all mankind is born in a state of sin and misery. Now, what does this have to do with Hosea chapters 9 and 10? Everything, really. Uh, you see, in many ways, the whole Old Testament is illuminating these truths to us, these truths that these catechism questions and answers just uh, elucidated. The whole Old Testament is showing us in many ways that the world, that due to sin, the world and mankind have been deeply affected, deeply affected by the fall. Uh, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament shows us that mankind is, is worthy of God's judgment. And what we're seeing in Hosea is that Israel is worthy of God's judgment. Sin has made life miserable for them. And sometimes they can't even see it. They're blind to it. And we in our own life experience, we, we know that sin has brought about various miseries in this world as well. And this morning as we study Hosea chapters 9 and 10, we take a, a long look at Israel's sin and misery and we rejoice that God has spared us from the judgment that's due to our sin. Because of Jesus. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles or turn in the Bibles provided to Hosea chapters 9 and 10. You can find the passage on page, the beginning of the passage, on page 755. As you recall from our studies in Hosea, Hosea was a prophet in the 8th century in the northern kingdom of Israel. That was the kingdom that he was mostly addressing throughout his prophetic ministry. He's, he's preaching in the lead up to uh, what happens to be the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC when they're overrun by Assyria and carried off to exile. Hosea, he's been called by God to explain and exemplify God's relationship with his people. Hosea was especially called to marry a woman who would turn out to be unfaithful to him. Her name was Gomer. And Hosea was called to picture God's love for his people by pursuing Gomer and purchasing her back. In this way, Hosea was showing God's redemptive love. And he, throughout the course of his ministry, is pursuing the people of God, calling them to come back to God. We've studied together the first three chapters of Hosea. It was mainly focused on Hosea and his relationship with Gomer. In chapters 4 to 14, we're mainly looking at Hosea's prophetic ministry, probably his preaching ministry, a compilation of the various sermons that he preached throughout his career. And in these chapters, Hosea, he stands as the, the covenant advocate for God. He prosecutes God's case against Israel, and he makes God's plea for the people of Israel to return to a faithful relationship to the Lord. In our last study, we saw the Lord announce that Israel has no knowledge of him. And we saw that that's not a, a charge of ignorance. It's that Israel does not have a relational intimacy with the Lord. They, they don't have true communion with God. They don't love him as they ought. And Hosea presented four lines of evidence that showed that this is true. Israel has appointed illegitimate kings. 
They've made illicit idols. They've formed inappropriate relationships and alliances. And they have offered improper worship. And in response to this, Yahweh, God, has rendered his judgment. He has said that Israel is guilty and that she's going to be punished for her iniquities and sins. And as chapter 9 opens, Hosea continues to announce this coming judgment of God. That this judgment that the nation of Assyria will carry out on the people of Israel. In the latter half of chapter 9 and really the whole of chapter 10, Hosea, he will offer different images and metaphors to the people of Israel to portray why Yahweh's judgment is just. Hosea shows how Israel behaved in a manner that was contrary to the covenant that they had formed with God. And here's Hosea's goal. He wants Israel to recognize their rebellion, to repent, and to return to the Lord. And that's what this portion of God's Word wants from us too. Hosea 9 and 10 calls each one of us to mourn over our sin, to repent, and to ask God in His kindness, grace, and mercy to rain down righteousness and save us. So let's consider Hosea's message. Let's begin with Hosea's first call to Israel and to us. Hosea 9 and 10 calls us first to exchange our joy for mourning. This is what Hosea says to Israel. You should exchange your joy for mourning. Uh, read Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, where we see this message of Hosea saying, you should exchange your joy for mourning. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of, of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Well, you notice there that chapter 9, it opens with two exhortations, two commands, really. Rejoice not and exult not. These two commands, I think, summarize the main concern of the first nine verses of Hosea chapter 9. Hosea's message is sobering. Israel, you have played the whore. You have forsaken your God. Hosea is once again accusing Israel of spiritual adultery. This behavior is not to be celebrated, but condemned it is not to be rejoiced in, but regretted and repented of. And verses 2 through 6 show all the ways that Israel will be bereft 
of the Lord's blessings. Their harvests will diminish. You see that in verse 2. They will be exiled from the land, verse 3. And because of that, they will not be permitted to offer sacrifices to the Lord, verse 4. And they will be deprived of their feasts, verse 5. In other words, their, their worship will be taken away. Think about this. The, the absence of worship is a judgment of God. It's not a blessing to have your worship removed or revoked. It's a judgment of God. A burden. So, dear Christian, I just want to encourage you. Do not impose this judgment upon yourself or your family when you are healthy and free from work. Be careful not to choose temporal things over eternal things. The Lord gave you six days to labor, and you should give Him one. Don't impose a burden on your souls or on other souls by removing worship from your week. That was a judgment upon the ancient people of God. Now, notice verse 6. It really contains some, some horrifying language. Israel is going to be gathered, and then what? Buried. Scavengers will come in and ransack their, their precious possessions. There won't even be an estate sale. How can there be joy when this judgment is coming? And there is no doubt that judgment is coming. The language of verse 7 expresses certainty. Look at it again. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The judgment is so certain that Hosea speaks of it as something that is already present and upon the people of Israel. Israel won't be able to pretend that it's not happening. They're going to know it. It's hard to say what's going on there in verses 7 and 8. There are a couple of um, suggestions about this prophet. But maybe the people of Israel are treating Hosea a bit like a madman. Right? Maybe they're saying, like, come, on, come on, Hosea, we're, we're prosperous, we're powerful. How, how can the Lord God uh, be displeased with us? You're a fool, Hosea, for what you're saying, that judgment's going to come. Right, right. Well, whatever the case may be, the conclusion is clear. Israel is corrupt and condemned. They're certainly not listening to God's prophet. We know that Israel is corrupt and condemned because Hosea likens Israel's corruption to what took place in Gibeah. The story can be found in Judges chapter 19. You can go ahead and read it later. But essentially, uh, a crowd gathers outside a man's home and a concubine is thrust out into the night and she is abused by the crowd all night and abused to death. And really, it's a replay of what took place in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom, Lot's house. And the point that was taking place in Judges 19 was that that city was worthy of judgment for its wickedness. And what Hosea is saying here is that just like Gibeah and what took place there, Israel is worthy of judgment for its wickedness. And judgment is certain. Consider how verse 9 concludes. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. You see, in this circumstance, joy is not warranted when judgment is so near to the people. So here is Hosea's call. Exchange your joy for mourning, because you are worthy of judgment. This raises a question for us. Have we mourned our sin? Have we mourned our sin? Or, or like Israel, have we kind of gone on our merry way? Have we grieved over how, like Israel, we've wrongly given our affections, our adoration to someone or something other than God? Remember Jesus, his comfort actually, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And in the face of our sin, we ought to exchange our joy for mourning. And we ought to hope in the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore our judgment in his body on the tree. When we recognize that Hosea's call is to exchange our joy for mourning, we must be careful. For this is not the whole of Hosea's message. He often has hope. Hope yet remains. After all, the prophet, he's standing there. He's standing there before the people of Israel. He's calling them to return to the Lord. He himself is a visible sign to this people, calling them back to the Lord. Still, there are, there are times where it's appropriate for us to stand and look at our sin in the mirror and, and to mourn. And that's what Hosea asks Israel to do as he presents various images to them, really in the remaining the remainder of our text, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 9 and stretching through the end of chapter 10. Hosea, as it were, he kind of he picks up this mirror and he shows them different images from different angles so that the people of Israel have a whole picture of how they've rebelled against the Lord so that they can see that they need to return. It's a, a generous call from God through his prophet. We come upon the first set of images there in verses 10 to 17 of chapter 9. And through these images, Hosea says to the people of Israel in this section, you should produce fruit that lasts. This is point number two. You should produce fruit that lasts. Point number one was you should exchange your joy for mourning. Point number two is this. You should produce fruit that lasts. Follow along there as I read, beginning there in verse 10 to to verse 17. Hosea says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them. O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit, even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them, because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Now to grasp what Hosea is communicating here, we must understand there's a a turn that takes place in this text. A happy discovery takes place, but great Great uh, appreciation gives way to great disappointment. Great expectations give way to great disappointment. Yahweh found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. And think about what a happy discovery that would have been for a traveler in the wilderness. Look, there's sustenance. There's encouragement, fruit here that I may partake of. And then this is followed by a similar image. There's this first fruit on a fig tree. It's it's an exciting prospect because what's the, the first fruit? It's a promise of yet more. And yet that, that doesn't seem to come. Early on, Israel showed promise in following Yahweh out of Egypt and into the wilderness. But great expectations were followed by great disappointment. This initial fruit, it did not last and no more fruit came. We know this by the very mention of, of Baal Peor. In Numbers 25, 
the people of Israel were on the edge of the promised land when at Baal Peor, the men of Israel, contrary to God's law, began to fornicate with the daughters of Moab. The daughters of Moab, they had invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, but the men of Israel, they were responsible. They actually ate and they, they bowed down before these gods. And really, what Hosea is saying to us is they, they've been living in idolatry really ever since. They, they came out in obedience, but then even in the wilderness, they, they disobeyed. They consecrated themselves to a thing of shame and became detestable, as Hosea says there in verse 10. And as a result, judgment is on the way. Ephraim, which is a, a tribe that stands, a large tribe in the northern kingdom, and they often stand in place kind of for the, for the whole. Ephraim will suffer the loss of beauty, be stricken with barrenness and bereavement. All these judgments pertaining to the womb and Israel's population are found in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Yahweh told Israel that if they disobeyed His voice, cursed would be their womb. It's Deuteronomy 28 verse 18. And then later on in that chapter, Deuteronomy 28 verse 62, whereas you are numerous as the stars in heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. That's what's happening here, isn't it? It's fascinating that Israel's corruption is evoked not only through these metaphors, these agricultural metaphors, but it's also associated with geography. Have you been noticing that? We've heard of Gibeah and of Baal Peor. And then another place emerges there in verse 15, Gilgal, which where we read, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Gilgal, you see, was a major center for Baal worship. It's not surprising that it's associated with what happened in Baal Peor, bowing down to the gods of, of Moab. Israel's sins of idolatry are met with promises of punishment. There's the promise of exile and no love there in verse 15. No root, no fruit, and no children in verse 16. And rejection, verse 17. Verse 10, right, it began with great hopes of a sojourner in the wilderness finding grapes met with great promise. And then verse 17 concludes with a, a disappointing sojourn in the wild among the nations. Why? Well, verse 17 tells us very plainly, because they have not listened to him. Initially, they had listened to Yahweh. They heard his voice. They came out of Egypt. But as time went on, Israel decided they would listen. They would not listen to their God who found them and delighted in them. Israel would not obey his commands, but instead would obey the call of the foreign gods and false gods. Great expectations turned to great disappointments. Israel's fruit did not last, and too little came following that first fruit. And I want us to, um, by way of application, I want to meditate briefly on just three phrases in these texts, verses 10 to 17, that clue us in actually into some aspects of producing fruit that will last. In verse 10, there's that phrase, they became detestable like the thing they loved. Do you see that there at the end of verse 10? This is a principle that really runs throughout the scriptures. We become like the things we love. You ever notice how sometimes married people as they age, they start to look more and more like each other sometimes? Yeah, we, we become like the things we love. And Scripture teaches us this principle. As one believer put it, we revere what we revere, we resemble. What we revere, we resemble for ruin or restoration. If you want to become detestable, you give yourself to loving those things that the Lord finds detestable. If you want to become delightful, then you give yourself to loving 
the most delightful being in all of the universe. In other words, we want to bear fruit that will last. If we want to, we must tie our hearts to the one who will last, to Jesus. In John chapter 15, verse 16, he said, this is actually my design for you as my disciples. I want you to bear fruit that will last. Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or last. If we're to bear fruit that lasts, fruit that abides, then we need to be connected to the Lord Jesus. And there is a coming disconnect that uh, Hosea talks about here. You see that, that really horrifying phrase in verse 12, woe to them when I depart from them. Could there be a more horrifying act of judgment from God than to be disconnected from Him, to be, have Him depart from you? We are surely to wither and die if we're disconnected from our God. He's the source of our life. His nearness to us is our good, as the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 28. If we are to bear fruit that lasts, we must love the one who lasts. We must be near to the one who lasts. And we must listen to the one who lasts. And look at the beginning of verse 17. Really here we learn that perhaps the path of being near and loving the one who lasts is first listening to him. Verse 17, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to grow and bear fruit that will last? Fruit that won't fade? Fruit that won't be an empty promise of more to come? Well, then you need to give your ears to the God who speaks in and through his word. We need more Bible and not less. The world is constantly calling us. Like, like the daughters of Moab, how they invited the people of Israel to come and worship their gods. The, the world is constantly calling us to come to them and to listen to them. Listen to what they have to say in various forms. We, we prayed about that some in our, our prayer of confession earlier, didn't we? The world is constantly calling us. We actually need more good news, and less Google news, probably. We need more of our Bibles and not less. Well, Hosea has made Israel look in the mirror to see that their fruit does not last. And as chapter 10 opens, Hosea makes Israel look in the mirror, really from kind of another angle. This time he shows them that they love luxury more than the Lord. And that's our next point. This is what Hosea says to Israel. You should love the Lord more than luxury. You should love the Lord more than luxury. Read Hosea chapter 10, uh, verses 1 to 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Aven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Aven, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, 
Cover us into the hills. Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Hosea, he continues to hold up the mirror and he continues to multiply the metaphors and images. He continues to announce that God's judgment is coming. That's what we see in these verses. We've met grapes in the wilderness and the first fruit on a fig tree. Now we meet a luxuriant vine. And this tells us something about the material prosperity. Israel was wealthy and rich. What Israel did with their resources showed, actually, that they had a false heart. More money meant more altars to false gods. Greater prosperity meant greater pillars to false gods. More money meant more problems, at least with the God who said, you shall have no other gods before me. Israel loved their money more than their maker, who had so generously blessed them and made them rich in the promised land. They spent their wealth on themselves and on their passions, the passions of their flesh, what they pleased, what pleased them, rather than what pleased God. They seemed happy in their idolatry. As Mr. Spurgeon warned, there is no greater evil than for a heart to be happy in idolatry. Just pause and notice the danger that wealth can bring. Prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's pleasure. Prosperity is not necessarily a triumph. It could very well be a test. Part of the challenge of money is that it often provides us with means to gratify the lusts of our flesh. It can tempt us toward a a false pride and confidence to overcome any hard providence. And it can grow a love for the world because actually through it we can buy portions of the world. We, We certainly can use money well and for the glory of God. But as J.C. Ryle once said, let the Christian who professes to have treasure in heaven set his face like a flint against the spirit of the world in this matter. Let him not worship gold. He is not the best man in God's eyes who has the most money, but he who has the most grace and likeness to Jesus. There's wisdom in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? The greatest treasure that we possess is God himself. And with him, we ought to be content. Having announced that Israel's guilty of false love, Hosea announces that Israel's going to have to bear their guilt The Lord promises to crush their idolatry in verses 2, 6, and 8. We should know that the Lord always crushes idols. He will brook no rivals. The Lord will put them through a period of political upheaval with occupants being moved on and off the throne that it will feel at times as there's no king and even if the king was reigning on the throne, he's of so little consequence that he's just like a twig that's floating across the water being pushed away and driven along. Now, Israel will give up. What could a king really do for us in this circumstance. You'll notice that in verse 5, that Bethel is identified as Beth-Avon. Hosea has changed the name of Beth-El, which means house of God. And uh, it's changed it to Beth-Avon, which means house of sin and wickedness. Bethel was a, a house of wickedness because that's where Israel profanely worshipped Yahweh through the golden calf. 
their beloved calf is going to be carried off to Assyria. And the people of Israel, they'd go with it too. They would be put to shame and defeated by Assyria. Israel's guilty and they must bear their guilt for their curse. See that in verse 2. One of the things I found fascinating about these verses there is in verse 8, that phrase, thorn and thistle shall grow up. Okay, for some Bible trivia, where's the first place that that appears in the Bible? Thorn and thistle. Genesis 3, Genesis that's right. The first place that thorn and thistle appear in the Bible are Genesis 3, and it's a sign of God's curse and judgment. And here, what do we have here but this context of judgment? And this judgment on Israel will be so harrowing that the people of Israel, they'd want to escape it. If they could, they would say to the mountains, cover us, and the hills fall on us. The judgment of God will be so awful that they wish that it could just be over immediately. Just put us out of our misery is essentially what that phrase is saying. And the Apostle John, he picks up on that phrase. I think looking back on what Jesus said in, in, in Luke 23 that we read earlier, right? Jesus, he's walking on his way to the cross and these women are weeping for him and he says, weep not for me. Jerusalem will want to say to the mountains, the hills, fall on us and cover us. And John, the Apostle John, in his revelation, picks up this language. The people who face final judgment, the eternal judgment of God, they will be saying the same thing. Listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. John writes, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, which is what Israel was, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What's interesting about the book of Revelation is not the lion you need to be afraid of, but the Lamb who is slain. And John is saying, in Christ's final judgment, on the end of all things, people will be begging for it to be over. Verses 9 and 10, and the reminder of Gibeah in those verses underscore the unavoidable reality that this judgment is coming through the exile. And yet, in light of what John says in Revelation chapter 6, the exile from the promised land of Canaan, right, the people of Israel being moved out of their homeland, that will be nothing compared to the final judgment where people are exiled from God's presence in the promised land of heaven. We must remember that this temporal judgment on Israel is but a sign to a greater and final and eternal judgment upon those who rebel against the Lord Jesus. And there is nothing that the world can say to alter the timing of God's judgment. Just as verse 10 makes plain that God will discipline and punish Israel when He pleases. So here's the question for each one of us, or at least one question. What have we done with God's riches and immense blessings in our lives? Israel was a luxuriant vine, and she misspent her health and her wealth on things that God detested. What are you spending? What are we spending our lives on? What are we spending our health on? What are we spending our, our wealth on? How can we be a luxuriant and fruitful vine that isn't punished but is pleasing to the Lord? Well, the answer really is connected to what we said about the, the grapes in the wilderness. The only way that we can be an abundant and fruit-bearing vine, as Jesus actually wants us to be, 
is to be connected to the one who is the true vine. Is to be connected to Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. I read from John 15 earlier, but what Jesus says there in John 15 is that he is the true vine that God always wanted. He's the vine that Israel failed to be. He's the, the fulfillment of what God meant Israel to be. And Jesus tells us that God will cut off those branches that do not bear fruit. He'll throw them in the fire. The only way to avoid being cut off and cast into the fire is to be united to Jesus, to abide in Him. Friend Hosea, he has been clear about God's judgment against those who do not submit to and serve Him, who do not listen to Him. The Apostle John has told us that the whole world will ask for the mountains to fall on us when Jesus comes to judge. The only way to escape this judgment is to be united to the true vine, to Jesus, by faith. Friend, I, I urge you, I plead with you to come to see that just like Israel, just like Adam before Israel, we have all sinned, lived in a state of sin and misery, contributing to our own state through our own sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as the scriptures say. We've all worked in sin. And the wages of sin is death. Death is, as one poet said, death is the minimum wage. So how do we escape being paid our wages for working in sin? Well, our only hope is to trust that God sent His beloved Son, His Son to live the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father, keeping the covenant commands, and living perfectly, honoring His Father in heaven, doing all that the Father told Him to do, laying His life down on the cross for all of those who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. The judgment that should fall on us has fallen upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must believe that He stood in our place, taking our punishment for our sins, and that He died bearing the wrath of God that our sins deserve, being paid our wages for sin. And the good news that the Scriptures teach us is that the Lord Jesus was raised from the grave three days after His death. He was vindicated, proving that His life was righteous in God's sight. And so all who are united to Him by faith, who are a part of Him, embracing Him in faith, all those who turn from their sin and trust in Him for salvation are a part of that true vine that brings honor and glory to God. And that we bear fruit by His Spirit working in our hearts and lives. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The only way to be the vine that God does not judge but the vine that is approved and pleased of by God is to be connected to Christ. So come to Him today. And place your faith in Him. If you want to think more about that, talk more about that. I'll be at the door after the service. I'd love to talk with you about this good news. That the Lord Jesus Christ can save us from all of our sins and the judgment that we deserve. At the end of, of chapter 10, Hosea, he turns the mirror once more, showing Israel her sin from yet another angle. Another image is given to us through the image of a trained calf that loves to thresh. Hosea effectively says to Israel... You should prepare the soil of your heart. That's the title of our fourth and final point. You should prepare the soil of your heart. Read Hosea chapter 10, verses 11 through 15 now. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you, 
You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. It's clear through uh, these verses that Hosea, he continues to develop uh, agricultural imagery and imagery that's associated with it. Here we meet a, a trained calf that loves to thresh. Uh, the Lord Yah- uh, Yahweh presents uh, Israel as a cow. Nobody ever likes being called a cow, but actually this is a positive image. Uh, it's a, a, a calf that's trained, that does what it's told, that loves to thresh. Now, uh, threshing is the process where the, um, the grain, the seed is separated from the, the husk. And uh, a cow would either uh, be brought into the area to kind of sep- uh, step on it and separate it, or the cow would be pulling a large object to help break it up. And here we're told that uh, Israel has been trained by the Lord. She does the will of the Lord. She loved to do it. She loved to thresh and enjoy the fruit of that labor. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 stipulated that you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. In other words, the ox can, can eat some of the fruit of its labor. So Israel loved to thresh. This was a, a pleasant picture with Israel receiving favorable te- treatment. The Lord spared her fair neck. But then there's a turn Halfway through verse 1. Instead of being allowed to freely labor, Israel will be forced to labor. That The yoke is going to go on the neck of Israel. And even Judah will be made to plow. Hard labor lies ahead for the people of God because of their sins. This is not a yoke that will be easy or a burden that will be light. Because this is the judgment of the Lord. What should Israel do? The prophet Hosea inserts an exhortation there in verse 12. And imagine this. Just just pause and think about this. Because this is some of the hope in the book of Hosea. Here is this judgment. 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 And Hosea says, but Israel, this is how you can respond in faithfulness. Here, Here is your opportunity to respond to the Lord. This is a call. A gracious call from God for the people to turn. So Hosea exclaims in verse 12, and this is what I've asked many of you to pray for me throughout this week, so I've prayed for many of you. Hosea says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. The truth is, is that Israel has been sowing in unrighteousness, and as a result, they've been reaping injustice and living in lies. Verse 13, What has that looked like in the life of the nation? They've trusted in themselves, their armies, and their fortresses, and as a result, their king and their kingdom will come crashing down. Verse 15. Remember, verse 12 is a message to the people of God, from the prophet of God, who's speaking on God's behalf. This is what they should do. Well, what would it look like for Israel to respond to Hosea's call? What would it look like for them to live out Verse 12. Just read verse 12 again. It's an incredible verse. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Israel must stop sowing unrighteousness 
And they must sow righteousness. In other words, they must repent. They must change directions and begin to deliberately practice the righteousness that God desires. The the righteousness that God wanted from His people was found in their covenant that He formed with them at Mount Sinai. God gave them His law, the ways in which He wanted them to walk. He outlined life for them in the promised land. He told them that if they were careful to do all that He had said, if they were careful to sow in that way, then they would really reap steadfast love. There's abundant blessings attached to that. Well, what must be done? Even before you begin to sow, the soil must be prepared. Israel must break up the fallow ground of their hearts. Israel's hearts have been filled with thorns and thistles. They've been compacted with sin and rebellion, walking in that same way, upon that same path, over and over again. Seed cannot go into soil that's hard. Altars need to be broken down and hearts need to be broken up. The continual compacting of sin on and in Israel's heart cannot keep going on. What about you? What what patterns of sin have you walked across day by day? What sins have, have made a path of compacted dirt and fallow ground in your heart? What sins need to be broken up? Perhaps the the sins of of bitterness and anger. I know that this was one of the things that the Lord was working on me in my heart this past week, even yesterday. I told my wife this morning, I struggled with a a bitterness at God's providence. And it struck me, I realized in my bitterness, I'm, I'm actually angry at the Lord for His providence. And I need to repent of that and to to accept it gladly because it's good for me. But what about you? Perhaps we need to break up some, some bitterness and anger in our hearts and lives. Maybe we're bitter that life hasn't turned out as we had hoped in, in varying ways. Maybe we faced unmet hopes and expectations. Maybe marriage has been more difficult than we had expected or hoped. Uh, maybe um, we're bitter that our career hasn't been more gratifying. This is not as fun as I, I thought it was going to be. Maybe we're, we're bitter that childbearing or child rearing has been difficult. Children, maybe you're bitter uh, that your parents aren't more agreeable to your ideas for meals or activities or permissions or privileges. It's one thing to be disappointed and persevere in trusting God. It's another thing to be bitter. And what we all need to realize about bitterness is that it's really just a low boil of anger against God. I had a friend say to me a long time ago that bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting another person to die. Uh, It's destructive to our soul. Do we need to break up the ground of of bitterness and perhaps anger toward God in our hearts? Perhaps sins of envy and greed need to be broken up. Why are these tasks or those trials or this aspect of life so much easier for someone else? Perhaps you think to yourself, I wish I could trade places with them. Uh, I wish my family was more like theirs. I wish my home was more like theirs or in their neighborhood. I wish I had their education, their intellect, their brain. I wish I was able to play sports that those kids play. I wish I, school was as easy for me as it is for them. Uh, I wish I had their ministry. I wish I had more money, a larger home, a newer car, a higher paying job, a bigger yard. Do we need to break up the ground of envy and greed in our lives? 
And yes, I, I do mean to point these questions primarily at, at Christians. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 was for the people of God. It's for us too. What paths of fallow ground might be found in our hearts? And let's be honest, it will be painful to break them up. It will be painful to confess them, to repent of them. It will be painful to break up fallow ground. After all, a sharp shovel to stern soil pierces and cuts, right? But that's what needs to be done for seed, for good seed, to be sowed if steadfast love is to be reaped. A broken and contrite heart our God will not despise. When was the last time you were broken? Really and meaningfully broken over your sin. Full of grief. Is there some hardness of, of heart in, toward the Lord? Pray for the grace of God, the help of the Holy Spirit to break up the fallow ground. And Hosea gives us hope, I think, in verse 12. Not only do we need to practice righteousness, not only do we need to have our hearts plowed, as painful as that might be, but we also need to seek the Lord. And this, this should give us immense hope. Because what's the implication? It's time to seek the Lord. The implication is that He will be found. He'll be found. He's ready to be found. And notice what Hosea says. He says that it is the time to seek the Lord. When should you seek the Lord? Now. Don't wait a moment more. Do not delay. Go to Him today. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that our God rewards those who seek Him. In fact, that seems to be the promise of Hosea uh, chapter 10, verse 12. The end of verse 12, doesn't it? There the promise is that the Lord may come and rain righteousness upon you. What a refreshing image, isn't it? The dry soil of our hearts needs the refreshing and righteous reign of God. And this is the good news for those who have sown in unrighteousness like us, isn't it? What does, God, what does this say about God? He's ready to shower repentant sinners with good gifts, especially with the gift of salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is all our righteousness and all our hope. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. In this text... Hosea, he tells ancient Israel four things. You should exchange joy for mourning in view of your sin. You should produce fruit that lasts. You should love the Lord more than luxury. You should prepare the soil of your heart. In all of these admonitions, in all of these you shoulds, they're, they're rightly derived from the Bible. They're admonitions that we ought to adhere to. We should mourn over our sin when it's brought before our eyes. We should produce fruit that lasts. We should love the Lord more than luxury and everything else for that matter. We should repent and break up the fallow ground of our hearts. These are paths to pursue. And they are only and always pursued by the strength and grace that God gives. It is our God who sends His Spirit into the world to convict the world and us of sin. He gives the gift of true mourning over sin. It's our God who gives the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, fruit that will last. It's our God who gives us new and higher loves when we are so prone to love the world. It is our God who breaks up the hardness of our hearts so that He might bind us, heal us, refresh us, and restore us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As we consider this message of Hosea 9 and 10, I pray that we would marvel 
at God's persistence to send a pesky prophet to keep calling the people of Israel back to himself. Brothers and sisters, that's what he does day by day. He keeps coming to us, sending his spirit to us, saying, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The spirit is pesky. He's after us. And he calls us on to Christ to remind us that our only hope is in Christ, to draw us deeper into him and to refresh us with his righteousness and grace.